Well, good morning again, Three Rivers. This is always one of, I think, everybody, if you've been at Three Rivers for a while, uh, you know this is one of our favorite mornings. This is a good time. A, the food is always outstanding, and there's lots of it. But it's also the neat environment, um, particularly coming to this time of year as we celebrate Emmanuel, God with us. And so uh, with that in mind, we're going to look at Isaiah 7, 10 to 16. So if you've got your Bible, you can you can flip there. These notes are available for you at the blog, MitchJolly.com. You can go there and, and you'll have access to, to, um, to some good notes that will help you out. There are a few things in the notes, too, that I'm not going to have time to share with you this morning. And so I'm going to do everything within my power as the Lord would grant me the ability to skip over some notes that are there for you to read to assist you. I want to put a resource in front of you to, uh, if you are so compelled, as we've been studying through Isaiah for the Advent season, and as we prepare in the spring to finish up Acts, we're going to be jumping into the book of Genesis, um, and studying through the book of Genesis, uh, you learn, if you've been at Three Rivers very long, we we teach you. And uh, one of the things we teach you is the Bible preaches the gospel from Genesis to Revelation. The gospel doesn't come to us at Matthew. The gospel is preached from Genesis all the way through Malachi too. As a matter of fact, the New Testament authors were preaching from the Old Testament as they're writing the New Testament. Okay? And so... Um, so we're going to endeavor as we preach through Genesis to make sure that we don't lay on you things that that the Bible just doesn't lay on you. I want to teach you not only what it says, but how to study it. It's a great resource by Graham Goldsworthy. It's called According to Plan. It's a great introduction to studying the Bible in that fashion, which is how you're supposed to study it. It's not written in a fashion that you can't understand it. And for a dyslexic guy to tell you you can read it, you can read it. Okay? And so I want to put that in front of you. Graham Goldsworthy... All right. And the title is According to Plan. All right. According to Plan. Uh, you should go to Amazon or ChristianBook.com and order that. It'd be a great read for you. You can plow slowly through it and it'll help you as we study through Genesis. But it also helps us today as we look at Isaiah 7, 10 to 16. Because so, so, so much the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, they're preaching from passages like this one today. And so, Isaiah 7, 10 to 16 is our focus, but if you wouldn't mind, I would really like to read verse 1 through 16 to help you see a little bit more of the picture and context that verse 10 to 16 falls in, okay? So if you got your Bibles, Isaiah 7, beginning in verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah... Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, now that's Isaiah's son, At the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah because of Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah. 
They have devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Isaiah 7, 10 to 16. If you're going to put a banner over this, a little title, it would be this. Emmanuel, God with us. Kingdom come, restoration begun. We'll unpack that as we move along. And that will be our title. That will put our, our covering over our text today. Emmanuel, God with us. Kingdom come, restoration begun. Quick little bit of background. Ahaz is not a godly king. Don't let his refusal to ask for a sign trick you into thinking he's a good guy. Ahaz is king of Judah. And Judah's under siege from two other kingdoms, Syria and northern Israel, the northern kingdom. And Ahaz is seeking help from Assyria rather than the Lord. Ahaz is modeling his spiritual pursuits after those of the Assyrians. Since he's in league with them militarily, he is also copying their spiritual habits. If you go read 2 Kings 16, you'll read about him sacrificing one of his own sons in the fire to the gods of Assyria. He takes the, the model of the Assyrian's altar and he has the altar in the house of the Lord removed and a model of the one of the Assyrians put in the house of the Lord. Not a good king. So the Lord, though, being gracious, because he is gracious and kind, tells Ahaz that he will rescue him. He just needs to exercise trust. The Lord even offers... A sign to Ahaz that what has been promised is going to come to pass. But Ahab refuses the sign on the grounds of not putting the Lord to the test. As if his spirituality being shaped by the Assyrians isn't putting the Lord to the test, right? What nobody knows won't hurt him. No, 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 I'm not going to put the Lord to the test when I ask for a sign. Although I've got an altar that looks like a pagan altar in the house of the Lord. I'm not going to ask for a sign. So Ahaz is assigned levels of importance and spirituality and fiending spirituality and following of the Lord. So he refuses this sign on the grounds of not putting the Lord to the test. The sign is that the new wife, probably of Ahaz, would conceive and have a son. Now, For the immediate audience, the promise that the new wife of the king conceiving a prince would bring great hope because it signals God's faithfulness to keep one of David's descendants 
on the throne and thus securing the kingdom and their personal security. Right? Because God promised, David, I'm going to set one of your sons on the throne perpetually. And so for the king to now have a prince, they're going, okay, we're going to have another king. It's going to be okay. It's also likely that this virgin could be Isaiah's second wife, since his first wife died after Sheer Jashub was born. If you read Isaiah 8, 1 to 4, and then Isaiah 8, verse 8 to 10, you can see that this second son born to Isaiah's name would be Emmanuel or Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Go play with that one there in your pronunciation. However, and, and this is a big however, and I want you to hear this. Jesus, as the interpretive key to the whole Old Testament. And we'll let that sink in for a moment. Jesus, as the interpretive key to the whole Old Testament, causes us to see this passage the way Matthew sees it in Matthew 1, 18-25, under the Spirit's inspiration, as God's promise to finally and fully secure David's line with the real king, God Himself. Not some human king who will be tempted to follow after the Assyrians or the coming Babylonians or some other spiritual pursuit. Not some king that's going to die and their hopes flail with that king and looking for another. But God Himself in establishing a kingdom that will never fade, never come under peril from another kingdom. It will never fail or never fall to any threat, however great or petty like resin or Pekka. So when we come to this passage, we must see it the way the New Testament sees it. And that is fulfilled in none other than Jesus. John 5, 39. This isn't in your notes. This is, this is free. John 5, 39. You search the Scriptures, Jesus said, because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is they that speak about me. That's Jesus, right? Luke 24, right? Two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He opens their minds to understand the Scriptures. And starting with Moses and going through the prophets, He preached to them everything concerning Himself, right? This would be one of those passages. Because we see that Matthew takes this passage as applied to them in their context and he shows us what it really means and what its intention is. So we ask the question, what do we see? What does it mean? you got to remember, listen, you have to remember, Genesis to Malachi is Christian Scripture. It's not Jewish Scripture. It's just not. Okay? How the New Testament reads and interprets the Old Testament is how we are to read and interpret it. So we don't stop with the historical... Oh, oh, okay, so I see, um, you know, the king would have a son, and the people would take hope, and so they were supposed to have hope in God. That's not the point of the text. That's how a Jewish person would read it, but we're not Jewish. And it's not a Jewish text, it's a Christian text. Right? And we see how Matthew comes at this passage, and that's how we are to come at this passage. So what do we see in Matthew's interpretation of this text, and what does it mean? Well, we've got, we've got one point, just one point, and, and, and a, a slew of subpoints. okay? One point, what do we see, what does it mean? Here it is. 
Matthew records this passage as ultimate fulfillment as realized in Jesus. Matthew records this passage as its ultimate fulfillment being realized in none other than Jesus. This is why we say that we are all about Jesus. This is why we come to the gospel and see well, it's not just our interpretation. It's Jesus giving us the interpretation that he is the exclusive key to salvation. He is the only way, the only hope. There is no other because of what we read in the text applied to Jesus from the Old Testament. Matthew records this passage, ultimate fulfillment, realized in Jesus. So take a look at Matthew 1, 18 to 25. Uh, Adam was coming. Adam came in this morning. I was sitting in, in my office uh, out back um, in a few minutes, just kind of get my thoughts together and finishing up my Bible reading for the day. And today's passage, uh, the Old Testament, was Hosea chapter eleven through through fourteen, and, and and it just starts out with a bang because Hosea eleven one is a passage the New Testament quotes, the Gospels quote as applying to Jesus. In which Hosea says, referencing Israel, Israel is my son. And I called Israel out of Egypt. Right? This is fun. Matthew quotes Hosea 11.1 as Jesus being the one who is the faithful Israel. This isn't an eschatology class. And you may not even know what the word eschatology means. But it's kind of last stuff. That passage affects how we see everything. Because that's how Matthew read Hosea 11.1. 1, right? And as Christians, so I'm sharing with Adam, I'm like, I hope I'm not confusing you, man. Because it's blowing my mind, man. And so he's like, yeah, yeah, I get it. I get it. Keep talking. I'm trying to do two things. So I'm just, here's what I'm reading today, Adam. He's like, i got to get ready. So it's, it's there. It's all over your Bible. And so as you read your New Testament, just pay attention to how it interprets the Old Testament. And I promise you this, it'll open the world of the Old Testament to you. It'll change the way you come at Christmas. The way you see Jesus as not just a baby in a manger, but the eternal Son of God eternally planning to come and fulfill the promise He Himself made to David that I will be that one. I will be that King. I will establish that kingdom that will never fail. So Jesus born in a manger isn't Jesus weak. It's Jesus fulfilling His promise to David. It also helps you to see David right. David's not there so that you can figure out how to conquer your giants in your life. That's misusing the text. David is not there to show you how to conquer giants in life. David is there to show you what Jesus looks like in hopes that you will look to Jesus as the greater David. As David was faithful, as David was a good king, and David established the kingdom, Jesus comes as the better David, who not only was a good king, is the best king, and establishes a kingdom that will never falter or fail. So when you see David, you should look up, and oh, that's preparing me for Jesus. That's David's function. Because that's how the New Testament preaches David. Are you tracking? You, you feeling that? This is an Old Testament survey class. I missed teaching Old Testament survey. I used to be a teacher a long time. And so I missed teaching Old Testament survey. So you're my students this morning. Alright? So that's just a little glimpse into how to read the Old Testament. So we come to this Matthew 7 passage. And we got to see it the way Matthew does. Because Matthew records Isaiah 7, 10 to 16 as fulfilled in Jesus. So Isaiah 7, 10 to 16 is not about God preserving political Israel. Isaiah 
Isaiah 7, 10 to 16 is about pointing us to God's fulfilling his promise to David being fulfilled in Jesus. So let's take a look at Matthew 1, 18 to 25. If you're on the blog, you can just read it. I have it typed out for you. If you have your Bible, you can flip over and see. And this is Matthew interpreting Isaiah 7, 10 to 16. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place. You, you, you catching this? You ready? All this took place to fulfill what the Lord spoke by the prophet. Colon. And here's the quote. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. I just want to point you back to that last little sentence. All this. What this? This thing that just happened in which Joseph is told, don't worry. Don't worry. All of this, Joseph, is to fulfill what the Lord spoke by the prophet in Isaiah 7, 10 to 16. And so when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So we see here in Matthew that this passage's ultimate fulfillment is realized in Jesus. We also see... Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise, and therefore all promises, to sit one of David's on his throne forever. God is God who makes promises. and He promised David, I will sit a king on your throne, and he will reign forever, and there will be one perpetually, David. And we read from this passage, we learn from this passage, that Jesus is that fulfillment, and God keeps his promises, and God has set one on the throne forever, and there need not be one after Jesus. He's the fulfillment of the promise. We see this in Romans 1.3. I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm giving you how the New Testament interprets this passage. So this, this is how you do it. So you have in the notes how to do this, okay? And I hope you're hearing the great courage should be building in the hearts of believers that God is a God who keeps His Word. We're going to see that here in just a moment. Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise and all promises to David to sit a king on his throne forever. Romans 1.3 Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. I'm hot. I'm like, daggum sweating. I'm sorry. I apologize. If uh, y'all hot too? It's the fire. I think it is. So I'm not sweaty preacher guy, I promise. But I feel like sweaty preacher guy and I'm sorry. Paul, servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God which He promised beforehand through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning His Son who was descended from David according to the flesh. So even Paul tells us here that Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise and He has set Him on the throne. God has kept His promises. He's fulfilled His promise. And He's done that to us in Jesus. A little side note for you here. All the kings of the Old Testament were preparation for Jesus as either dead ends or bridges that lead us to Jesus. 
David was a bridge. David was good. He was a good king. He led well. He established a kingdom. He faithfully represented the Lord to his people. But he died. (laughs) He died. And it left them going, who will lead us now? David was a faithful bridge that pointed us to the next one to come. And the New Testament unequivocally tells us that is Jesus. Some of the kings of the Old Testament were dead ends. They weren't good kings. And they left you going, oh my Lord. If that's the best we got, we're in trouble. Who's going to help us now? (gasps) New Testament, Jesus helps us now. We also see... Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise to establish God's kingdom rule forever and do so in an increasing manner from His first coming until completed at His second coming. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise to establish God's kingdom rule forever. This is why God gave kings and allowed kings. Why kings? Why kingdoms in the Old Testament? To point us to the rule of God's kingdom. This is why you'll read in Mark 1.15, while you'll read in all the Gospels, Jesus preached the good news of the kingdom. And you hear this at our church because we talk to you about the kingdom. What is the kingdom of God? We, we even have a little, a little, little four letters that help describe our DNA. KDSC, Kingdom Disciple Society Church. Because it's not just the gospel of salvation. Salvation comes underneath the kingdom because salvation is a part of the kingdom. Don't misunderstand. Salvation comes, but it comes under the kingdom rule of Jesus. You read Mark 150. You read everything Jesus said. He preached the good news of the kingdom. God gave us kings and kingdoms to point us to the fact that He is a king and will rule in a kingdom eternally like a king rules. So that we would be people who have a concept of and would look forward to the kingly rule of Jesus forever. That's why kings and kingdoms in the Old Testament. And we see here that Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise to establish God's kingdom rule forever. And in an increasing manner. Because what we see in the Old Testament is often the kingdom of Israel plateauing, right? Mm. And then declining. Plateauing and then declining. When Jesus comes, we learn that His kingdom is established and it increases and continues to increase. It will never plateau. It will always advance. You say, how do we know? Isaiah 9-7. Speaking of this one who was promised in Isaiah 7, 10-16. Of the increase of his, of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise. His kingdom has come and His kingdom is increasing and ever increasing and it cannot be stopped. That's the result of Emmanuel, God with us. The kingdom has come. And the kingdom has been finally established. No more peaks and valleys of the kingdom. The psalmist says this in Psalm 84. This highway to Zion and they will go from strength to strength. Why? Because the kingdom is ever increasing. Jesus' rule is only growing. You know this personally, and and because you're part of this fellowship and you see how we're globally plugged in, we see it globally. If you're in Christ, Jesus' rule is only ever increasing in you. It's only increasing. There's no such thing as being in Jesus and not being in Jesus. 
There's only Jesus and His growth of His rule over you through what's a big Bible term, the big theology word we call sanctification. He is constantly cleaning you up. Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work will complete it. Why? Because His work is only ever increasing and it will know no end. Ephesians 1, 7 to 10, right? This mystery that God has made known, that He is working to bring all things under the rule of Christ. Into that chapter, right? He is working to set everything as a footstool under the feet of Jesus. Why? Because His kingdom is only increasing. So Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise. We see finally an observation in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and His ascension, and sending of the Spirit, God has come near to be with and inside of His kingdom people. Thus, Jesus is the fulfilling of every prophecy of the Scriptures. Emmanuel, God with us. In His coming, His death, His resurrection, and His ascension, and sending of the Spirit, God has come near to be with and inside His kingdom people. Acts 13 32 to 33. And we bring you the good news that what God has promised to the fathers, what God has promised to the fathers, right? We bring you this good news. What good news? That what God has promised to the fathers, this He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. That's awesome. And then He goes on to quote as proof Psalm 2, Isaiah 55, 3. Psalm 16 and Habakkuk 1.5. Because in Jesus, God has fulfilled every promise He made in the Old Testament. Listen, I want you to hear this. There's nothing left hanging for God to fulfill. Nothing. Nothing. We just read. All that He promised the fathers, He has fulfilled by raising Jesus. That's astounding. God has truly kept His Word. And He's fulfilled every promise made and He's done so in Jesus. So therefore, what are we supposed to do with this? What are our applications? Application number one. Stand in awe of God. Enjoy His grace and kindness and worship Him for His faithfulness. Sometimes, applications are less about a list of to-do items and more about our delight in, our enjoyment of, our awe of and worship of God above all things. So often, I am guilty of coming to you out of a worldview that says you need a list of things to do when you walk away from here today. We need, we need a list of items to achieve. And so often, that is superimposed on top of the text. It's not what the text would have us do. When we come to passages like this, it's not that we walk away with a list of things to do more than it is standing all that you did that. I get online, and after a Falcons win, I read every article. If you were to get on my browser and click history, you will find the Falcoholic, ESPN.com forward slash Falcons forward slash Vaughn McClure. You will read CBSSports.com forward slash Falcons. You, if it's written, I will stand in awe of Matt of Matt Ryan's 62 to 69% completion percentage. I'll stand in awe of the fact that they're averaging 32 points a game, leading the league. He's like, he knows that stuff, you bet. Because I stand in awe. 
And even one Sunday this year, Pastor Emmett and I from the other campus went to worship one Sunday at 4 o'clock when they played the Chargers. And God reminded us, you have one God and it's me, and He let them lose. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Right? I stand in awe of this dumb temporal sport that brings me so much pleasure. And then I come to the Bible, and I come to Jesus, and I find less pleasure. And it's not because He's less pleasurable, it's because I am broken. It's because I have other gods in front of Jesus. Now don't hear me say football is evil and bad and I should get rid of it. On the contrary, 405, I will be parked in front of the television watching the game. The the question is, what vies for my affections? You understand? And sometimes we come to passages like this and they fall on us silent. Or they fall on us with no effect. And what I want you to see today is this passage should fall on us and cause us to be awestruck at the faithfulness of God to tell us what He's going to do, then show us how He fulfilled it, then come on the backside and comment on it. We should look at that and go, Oh my Lord, you really are faithful. And and that should be enough for us. That we would say, Wow, Jesus really is King. He's really God. And He really has established a kingdom and it really will never end. And He really is ruling right now. And there, I have a good king. There's nothing for me to fret over. And we'll come to an election and lose our minds. God's abandoned us. He didn't abandon you. He's sitting on His throne, ruling on the line of David. The last one to ever rule, the last one to ever be needed. He's alive today. And He rules today and He rules well just like the Father said He would. And He is working to bring all things under His rule right now, including you and me. And He will one day bring me greater delight in Himself than a game brings me delight in a sport. And that's a great hope for me. And you can insert into that blank what it is that you have a greater delight in than Jesus. And you know what? He hadn't left you. He hadn't forsaken you. He is working to complete you. And one day, He will replace that thing with Himself. He will. Because what is His, He never abandons. What is His, He will complete because He promised He would. And we come to passages like this and we should go, Yeah, you got this. I'm good. I'm good. We stand in awe and enjoy His grace. And we worship Him for His faithfulness. Second, Application, and this is less something to do, more of something to help you stand in awe. God is not far off. He's near. Emmanuel has come. God with us. He has come. He is not distant. He is near. The feeling that He is distant is a lie. It's part of the curse. It's one of Satan's great tools. He is near. How do we know He's near? He said He's near. First thing Satan did in the garden was call into question God's Word. Did he say? He hasn't stopped with that question. It's still his chief way of coming at you. Did God really say to do that? Should we obey him? I mean, after all, I can see a more efficient way. And then the Proverbs tell us there is a way that seems right to man, but the end is, do you know God's word? Death. It's not our way. It's His way. 
Right? And we recognize He's come near and anything contrary to that is a lie. Because we're told Emmanuel has come, God with us. He has come to rescue His people. He's not far off, He's near. Number three, the kingdom has been tangibly established. I'm about done. Hang tight. The kingdom has been tangibly established. And all things are being reconciled back to Jesus from people to created order. Listen guys, the kingdom has come. And this is something that is challenging American Christians. What is your country? Where is your allegiance? And it is to Jesus and His kingdom first. The kingdom has come. The kingdom has come. The rule of Christ has been established. People are being raised to life spiritually and physically. They're being renewed spiritually and walking in the good works of bringing things back under the rule of Jesus. Creation itself is even groaning from its subjection to futility and longing for the full revealing of the sons of God so it can be free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's from Romans 8, 18 to 21. Even Jesus and His kingdom hasn't forgotten the earth. It's His. And because Emmanuel has come, God with us, He is also redeeming creation and created order back into His rule. That's something Christians, we've got to figure out because God thought enough of it to have Paul write it down in Romans 8. That even the kingdom is fixing the broken created order. Fourth and final little application point to help us marvel in, stand in awe of King Jesus this Christmas that Emmanuel has come. Is the world system has been turned upside down. And now the values of God's kingdom are the rule of law. So therefore live by God's values, not a broken world system's values. Here's where we best see this in the New Testament. Acts 2, 14-41, Peter is preaching at Pentecost. And he quotes Joel 2, 28 to 32 regarding the sun going dark and the moon to blood as what is currently happening as the spirit was sent from the sun what's the point and I've got a big note I don't have time to read you're going to have to go and read the note to understand how to read genres it's crazy as Christians if you're a reader we can read we can read like Lone Survivor Marcus Luttrell it's a historical narrative and we know how to read it We can read C.S. Lewis in fiction and we know how to read it. We come to the Bible, it's like Satan just does his thing and we turn off our smarts. And we quit exercising smart reading. Peter quotes Joel as the sun going dark and the moon turning to blood as what's happening at that very moment, not something happening in the future. Here's his point. The point is just like the sun going dark and the moon going bloody. Things got changed. They flip-flopped and turned upside down. The world system just got turned upside down because now Emmanuel has come. God has come to dwell in us. Everything's been fulfilled. Everything's changed. Everything's reversed. What you thought was normal order was actually backward. It's the curse. God's flipped it. He's made it right. He's fixed it. Does that not sound a little bit like Jesus when He said things like, the last will be first 
The first will be last. Who inherits the earth? The mighty? No. The meek. Why? Because everything in the curse just got flipped upside down when Jesus came. Because Jesus fixed it. He reversed it. And He is establishing His rule and it's ever increasing. And therefore, we are to live by God's values, not a broken world system values, because Jesus has come. Emmanuel has come. The day has dawned. God is with us. The kingdom has come. And the restoration has begun. That's Christmas. That's Christmas. That's Christmas. Let me just say this to you. This has been burning in my soul for two weeks. If Jesus is the reason for the season... Go to church on Christmas morning. Tracking with me? I don't care where you are. If you're visiting your family in Timbuktu, get up and go worship Jesus. Why? Because the kingdom's come. It's not irrelevant. It's not a waste of your day. We can't say Jesus is the reason for the season and then not show up when His day happens to fall on Sunday. You, you tracking with me there a little bit? Where's our value system, right? The kingdom's come. The king has come. Emmanuel, God with us. The kingdom's been established. His rule is present now. He's been faithful to David and kept all of his promises. And so therefore, when that day happens to fall on a Sabbath of worship, don't skip it. If he's really the reason for the season, then show it to be so. Does that make sense? Listen, you gotta really believe the kingdom's come. That's part of, you know, it is by grace you're saved through faith, right? It, trusting in Jesus means trusting in sometimes things don't make sense anymore because I'm fighting this battle of a world system that says this, God's word that says this, and what are we gonna trust? Did God really say? Or God said, and the kingdom's come, and Jesus rules over me. And therefore, I will bow the knee to King Jesus. So let me just suggest this to you next week. If you find yourself wherever you find yourself, okay? Because I know we all, people got to go visit family. That's good. And if your family don't want to go, find somewhere to go. Show up. And just, you think Jesus might just work something in you that's better than family time? Take your family. Right? Show, parents, show your children Jesus reigns in our decision making. We consider Jesus first. After all, it's His special day. So we can, we can wait. So if you're in town next week, we'll be right here. 11, not normal service time, not 1030. Won't be any radical kids. Right? 11 to 11.45. We're gonna come and sing some songs, observe the Lord's Supper, sing some songs and go home. 45 minutes. Right? We even cut it short for you. Feel like I'm cheating. Cheating Jesus. Not really. Right? But be here. Why? Because the kingdom's come. Emmanuel has come. Do you believe he dwells in you? Then give him the first fruits. Right? Let him have the first. You ever notice what God, I'm, I'm past the time. You notice what God does in the Old Testament? What does he ask for first? The first. Why? Because to give up the first is to recognize that God is faithful. And I'm giving you the first means I have nothing left. So I'm trusting you will make it grow to give me what I need. Now we either believe that trash or we need to walk on and do something else. Right? Let's either be Christian or let's not be Christian. If we're not going to be Christian, go find something else. Be a pagan, atheist, something. 
Find something that works for you. But if you're going to be a Christian, let's trust that Emmanuel has come. The kingdom is here. God's been faithful. And His reign is growing and increasing every day. Over me, over us, and over this world. And let's give Him the first. He's worthy. He's worthy. You believe that? Because He's not just a baby in a manger. He's the reigning King of the universe. He's the world champion. WCW, WWE, UFC, NFL, NBA. He rules it all. He's King. Emmanuel, God with us. Kingdom come, restoration begun. Let's pray. Father, we want to come and make much of you this morning in song, so help us to do that. Jesus, I do, um, I often act like you don't reign, and I do my own thing. I'm a child of the curse, born into sin, and uh, by your grace, you are taking back inch by inch in my own heart. And I confess to you that I'm often bitter and angry and frustrated and hurt and wounded and tired and uh, run out of descriptors. But what you did for me that evening on Jekyll Island when I was 20 years old, you've never stopped taking ground. And Jesus, I thank you for that today. That your kingdom sits over me and you rule over me. And I often act like a slave and not a son. But you don't cast me out. Because the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. So you placed your spirit in me, you put your seal on me, and you haven't let me go. So you're taking back ground. And for that, 